This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope you're all doing well. It's hard to believe we're almost at the middle of April. I guess spring really is going to happen after all. I'm doing my usual running around the yard like a chicken, trying to get ready for the many, many trays of native seedlings that I ordered. I went a little overboard this year. Well, truth be told, I go a little overboard every year. But that's part of the fun of gardening, right? Whatever plant I can't find a good place for will go to my neighbors or friends. It's a great way to get other people addicted to the joys of native gardening. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking to Angie Babbitt, Communications Director at MonarchWatch.org. MonarchWatch.org is doing some great work to help the monarch butterfly. And now for some exciting bird news. The black-browed babbler lives in Borneo. Try saying that five times fast. Long thought to be extinct, The black-browed babbler hadn't been seen in 170 years, not until members of an amateur bird-watching group recently took pictures of a muted black, gray, and chestnut-brown bird they could not identify. They sent the photos to a renowned ornithologist specializing in Indonesian birds. The ornithologist initially thought the photo was a prank, but he soon confirmed its authenticity and the discovery shocked avian scientists the world over. A bird enthusiast first documented the black-browed babbler around 1850. After that single sighting, the elusive bird remained an enigma to scientists, with no more sightings reported for nearly 200 years. Bird experts are already setting up expeditions to further explore the bird's remote territory and behavior, and are investigating the best methods for protecting the secretive bird. Yet more new studies are showing that the non-native Japanese barberry bush attracts ticks that carry Lyme disease. Japanese barberry was introduced to the United States in 1875 as an ornamental landscape plant. Since that time, it has spread to 31 states and is considered invasive since it is forcing native shrubs out of their normal range. According to scientists, barberry creates the perfect humidity for ticks to thrive. Areas with uncontrolled plantings of barberry were found to contain more than 10 times as many ticks than areas with no barberry present. Ticks can carry the Lyme spirochete, the organism that causes Lyme disease. The exotic shrub, with its spine-covered branches, typically grows 3 to 6 feet tall. Deer do not eat barberry because of its sharp spines, leading the plant to grow out of control into large, impenetrable thickets, say researchers. The ground beneath the barberry then becomes a prime hiding place for small mammals like the white-footed mouse, a vector for Lyme disease. 
According to a new study published in the Journal of Environmental Entomology, barberry modifies soil structure, halting nutrient recycling. That, in turn, disrupts the food web for ants and spiders, resulting in reduced numbers of insects. This has a direct effect on the survival of birds and other creatures who depend on the insects for food. We all know the symptoms of that strange malady called spring fever. It could be a family member, a friend, or a neighbor. You see a restless look in their eyes. You see them anxiously pacing back and forth inside the house, stopping only to longingly stare out the window. They sigh dramatically, checking weather.com, bemoaning the freezing temperatures, exclaiming they aren't sure whether they are going to survive before the snow melts. With the first burst of warm weather, they explode out the door, armed with a chainsaw, clippers, and a weed whacker. They cut away every branch with green buds, spray anything that flies with pesticides, cover every square foot of ground with painted mulch, and fill the air with the ear-splitting sound of a leaf blower. Unfortunately, most of the activities attributed to spring fever are harmful to wildlife, particularly the birds, butterflies, and bumblebees. Here are a few tips so you don't have to lock your family member in a closet until springtime is over. Number one, get rid of your lawn. Just because some English lord in the 1500s thought it looked nice to have a long, sweeping rectangle of manicured and sterile turf doesn't mean we all need to adhere to outdated and useless practices. Replace your lawn with native trees, shrubs, and flowers, or plant yourself a big organic vegetable garden. Either choice will benefit birds with lots of juicy insects to eat, and you will save a fortune on grass seed, weed killer, and gasoline for the mower. You will also free up an extra few hours every weekend to sit in a lawn chair and drink beer, because you won't be mowing or driving to a big box store to buy more expensive products for the lawn. Number two, poisons are designed to kill everything. Insecticides, fungicides, and herbicides kill not only millions of nesting songbirds in people's yards every year, but they also sicken and kill children, dogs, and cats. There's a reason why conventional agricultural areas have astronomical cancer rates. Research by the National Cancer Institute has found that farmers exposed to the most popular weed killers in the U.S. for only 20 days have a reportedly six-fold higher risk of developing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Exposed children have a four times higher likelihood of developing soft tissue cancers, and researchers are now seeing a link to severe cases of ADHD. In addition, Dogs exposed to these weed killers were twice as likely to develop lymphoma, according to the research. Number three, quiet, please. Remember how the town librarian used to shush everyone when things got rowdy in the children's section? Well, birds like it quiet, too. There is new evidence to show birds exposed to high decibel noise from machinery, like leaf blowers and mowers, can experience permanent deafness and disorientation. These birds often lose their way back to the nest or are so frightened by the noise they abandon their nest, leaving the hatchlings to starve to death. Deafness can also cause them to lose their mates because they can't hear their partner's bird song. In addition, they can't hear predators approaching, and they also miss vital migration cues. Number four, plastic is forever. 
Forget the plastic bags of dirt and build your own soil. It couldn't be easier. Get a composter and start recycling your food scraps. In no time, you'll have dark, crumbly, organic soil to put in your garden. Plastic bags don't break down or biodegrade, and the toxins from the plastic seep into the soil and poison the water table. Number five, that tinkling sound. It seems to be a rite of spring to drive to the garden center and buy musical wind chimes, colorful mylar spinners, and giant plastic pinwheels to decorate the backyard garden. Americans buy them by the millions every year. Buy these if you want to scare the living daylights out of birds. Birds are continually searching in their peripheral vision for predators. They are completely unnerved by the constant motion of pinwheels and spinners, and the sound of wind chimes will drive them away from your yard because they are unable to hear predators. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. The latest numbers on the monarchs that overwintered in Mexico this past winter are in, and the totals are somewhat disappointing. Nine colonies of monarch butterflies were counted by the World Wildlife Fund, the Mexican National Commission for Protected Areas, and the Monarch Butterfly Biosphere Reserve. The total forest area occupied by overwintering monarchs totaled 2.1 hectares. This marks a 26% decrease from last year's total of 2.83 hectares. If you'll remember, a hectare is roughly two and a half football fields in size. While not the lowest numbers ever reported, biologists are not exactly celebrating. In more news about monarchs, the butterfly was just turned down for endangered species status protection by federal officials. We talk now with Angie Babbitt, the communications director for monarchwatch.org, which is based at the University of Kansas, to talk about the ramifications of this decision. Just to note that this interview was conducted shortly before the overwintering totals in Mexico were released to the public. Angie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Now, can you tell me and our listeners all about Monarch Watch? Well, Monarch Watch was started by Dr. Chip Taylor. You might find his name as Orly Taylor, but he goes by Chip. And he started it in 1992 with the idea of continuing the tagging program that Dr. Fred and, and his wife, Nora, started. Fred and Nora or Urquhart started a tagging program back in the 40s. And they were enlisting school teachers to tag monarch butterflies so that they could try to figure out this mysterious disappearance of monarchs. They didn't know where they were going. So Fred and, and Nora were key players in figuring out that mystery. As you may know, there was a, a woman named Catalina Brueger. Catalina and her then partner, Ken, at the time, Rail is her name now, they were the ones who alerted Fred and Nora to the overwintering sites. So they're in Mexico. And that was a, a pretty historical discovery when they figured out that the monarchs that were coming from the, the 48 states up here and Canada, monarchs were coming from the 48 states in Canada all the way down to these overwintering sites that are as far south as Mexico City. And they made that connection. Well, 
once that was established, they sort of, you know, didn't really know that they could find much more out about tagging. And so they sort of let it go by the wayside. And I think maybe health issues because Fred Urquhart was getting up in age. He'd been doing this since the 40s and their discovery was in the 70s. So Chip Taylor decided that he wanted to start that program up again. He thought there was much more to learn about monarch butterflies based on this mark and recapture study. And indeed, there there have been a lot of papers just recently written about his 18 years of data was put together and combined to make a lot of different conclusions about monarch population biology and the movement of monarchs in their migration. The monarchs weren't necessarily in trouble so much as they were a curiosity. It was considered to be this phenomenon that nobody understood. Certainly back then, we didn't know where they were going when they left the United States and Canada. And that was something that Fred and Nora wanted to figure out. So they used this tagging study to accomplish that. In fact, when Fred was in the overwintering sites after Catalina and Ken Brugger told them about this mountain that they had discovered with monarchs covering it, they were there with a National Geographic team. And it just so happened that when Fred was sitting on a stump, he looked down and saw one of his tagged butterflies. It was a teacher and his students who had tagged this butterfly, and it was it was clear down there in Mexico. And he picked it up, and there, there's a photograph of him holding that butterfly in that National Geographic magazine. Also, if you were to pick up the copy of that magazine, you would see that Catalina Trail, the woman who was helping him, was sitting on a tree stump, a very large tree stump that was covered in monarch butterflies, but it had obviously been cut. Logging has been occurring in these forests for a very long time because people live in those areas and they need the wood for different things. One of the issues that has come up more recently, and you know, when I was in college in the 80s and 90s, I was hearing about monarchs uh, in Mexico and it was all focused on what are they doing to the monarchs in Mexico? We'd learned that there was this connection, but we were pointing our finger at the People in Mexico, as far as you know, if they're gonna if they're gonna have any trouble, it's gonna be their faults, right? Well, it's really actually quite much more complicated than that. And now we're realizing that we have a huge role to play because most of their life is spent up in the United States and Canada. And our role is to make sure that they have habitat. So it was, I believe, in 2000. 13 and 14 in that winter, and you can go back and look at the the graphics that we have available for the populations in the overwintering sites. You can see that the dips in the and up and downturns in the population size, which is normal for insect populations to have wide fluctuations. But their their trend is bit has been for a very long time for just go down. And I believe it was 2013-14, that winter, the population was extremely low and it raised a lot of alarms. There was the trilateral meeting between Mexico, the United States and Canada, the leaders of those countries. So once that happened, the public eye started turning more and more towards monarchs in the United States and Canada. And almost every governmental entity that has property, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. Geological Survey, any any group that had anything to do with property or the management of wildlife or plants, they were on board with trying to help solve this problem. Dr. Taylor 
played a large role in having a lot of conversations with these groups and with private organizations and corporations about what to do. One of the things that came out of that is that we started to get some grants to help restore milkweeds to the landscape. Milkweed is the only plant that monarch butterflies can lay their eggs on. And so there's this, this intricate relationship between the plants and the, and the butterflies. And monarchs aren't unique in this. They are one of a, a couple of, of species in North America that also lay their eggs on this family of plants. But if you look at you know, black swallowtail butterflies, a lot of people like to see that the, the parsley and dill that they grow sometimes produces black swallowtails. Well, that's because they have a very close relationship with plants in the carrot family. So most butterflies have a very specific relationship with the plants that they have to have for their larval life stage. So there are a lot of butterflies that have a specific relationship with plants because of the toxins that are in those plants. And monarchs are one of those. So the plants are actually producing the toxins to prevent herbivory, to prevent things from eating them. And the insects have adapted to those toxins and there's this constant battle between the plants and the and the things that eat them. So some plants produce so much toxin that monarchs are don't do quite so well on them. There's one plant that grows in our area that produces too many gummy latex-like materials. And when the monarch caterpillars eat them, it gums up their mouth parts and they don't do well. So there's they're they're really it's it's got kind of a dog-eat-dog world out there with, with monarchs. And so they have they also have a lot of predators and parasites that impact them. There's a really great organization for those people who might be interested in, in testing monarchs for diseases. They can send you a free testing kit. It's, it's called the Monarch Health Project. It's out of the University of Georgia. But as far as Monarch Watch goes, our big goal has been to promote habitat recreation restoring habitats to places where monarchs are found normally and where milkweed is found normally and get those native plants back in the ground. So we're encouraging people to have gardens in their backyards or even in their front yards. And we have a monarch way station program for that. So you can actually certify your garden as an official monarch way station if you have two things. And that would be milkweed, obviously, for the larval stage because they have to have that of nectar sources that butterflies love. So we like to encourage people to have a wide variety of plants. Diversity is, is key to healthy ecosystems. So some people like to grow just annuals and, some, and, and that's fine, but we're seeing a trend towards a lot of people growing perennial native plants, which are really good for all of the other things that are in the environment too. So tell me about your job. What, what do you do at Monarch Watch? So if anyone calls or emails Monarch Watch, I am the primary point source for those calls and emails. If, uh, if I can't answer a question and I need to move it up the line, Chip gets the call from, from people. And I also sometimes will answer a lot of emails about rearing monarchs, about milkweed, about the migration and I also do uh, some public speaking events. So if people are interested in having Monarch Watch talk to them about milkweeds or monarchs or anything like that, we, I do a lot of 
and you know, with COVID, it's been uh, great because I can talk to people in New Hampshire, which normally I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to travel to New Hampshire to do. So, you know, all kinds of locations. And then I also am managing the sale of milkweed across the country. We have nurseries that we're working with in Texas, California, Florida, Kansas, and Wisconsin. So we're able to cover a lot of the United States with native milkweed plants that are available. They're available to people by the flat, which has generally 32 plants in it. In Texas, they're in flats of 50. And I understand that that's a really large number for a lot of people. So we encourage people to try to find someone else to help share the the cost and the plants with. And we also have two milkweed grants. I manage one of them. It's for schools and nonprofits. And if you are on our webpage, which is just monarchwatch.org, you can see the link to free milkweed plants at the top of the page. The one that I have would allow for one flat of milkweed plants to go to a school or nonprofit. And the caveat is that the plants have to go into a garden that's available to the public. The idea here is that we're trying to promote the understanding of the issue and we're trying to promote people's exploration of monarchs and milkweed. So we have a lot of teachers who are including it in their curriculum if they put the plants in their garden, then they can do that. They can see eggs being laid on the plants and they can have their kids understand better the full life cycle of the monarchs. And we found, and almost every monarch biologist that you talk to will will say, it's the understanding of monarch butterflies and the personal contact that you get with a monarch butterfly that is always almost always positive And that connection is what leads people to want to conserve them. And by conserving monarchs, you're automatically going to be conserving a lot of other things. And I think I heard you on an earlier podcast talk about how conserving monarchs is, it it means planting habitat. And that isn't just for monarch butterflies. It's for birds. It's for the mice and the, and hopefully people aren't turned off by the idea of having mice in their backyards, but there will be some critters that come to you when you start planting. I've seen people gain a couple of reptiles and amphibians in their backyards just because they planted habitat. And those things belong here, you know, and the more space they have, the, the more healthy the ecosystem is. So tell me what drew you to this line of work? Well, I actually, for about 14 years after I graduated from the university with my master's degree, I was a stay-at-home mom and I was doing a lot of exploration of volunteer work. And I was for a long time the, the board member and sometimes president of a group called the Grassland Heritage Foundation. It's a very local conservation group here in in this area. And I realized that, you know, there's a, there are a lot of people who just don't fully understand the benefits of grasslands. People don't actually understand grasslands or are the number one most endangered habitat in the world. And they are also, in my opinion, sometimes much more valuable than some of the smaller ecosystems that we have, such as forests. Now, I am not saying that forests aren't valuable, but as far as carbon sequestration, grasslands are like top notch. They put that carbon down in the soil. You can have root systems that are as deep as 12 to 16 feet. 
and they store that carbon down in the ground. As soon as you start plowing up a prairie, that carbon is released. And you can actually see that in the historical records of the ice caps on the uh, planet, you could see historical records of where when people started plowing the soil, the carbon in the air went up. I love monarch butterflies, and I think they're very important species, but I'm, my, my ultimate goal is to get people to understand that ecosystems that we have kind of encroached on in our, in our environment, we sometimes actually encroach on them unwittingly without knowing the harm that we're causing. So for example, when you create a monarch waste station, what you're doing is you're reducing the amount of, sometimes reducing the amount of yard that you are mowing. Well, mowing a yard actually causes more carbon to go into the atmosphere. And creating a habitat causes there to be more carbon to be taken in from the atmosphere. Also, it provides all this habitat for wildlife. So it's really a win-win when you put habitat in your garden. It also is very enjoyable, gets you outside. You know, as I said, we like to get people to support our larger projects, such as our free milkweeds for restoration project, which is allowing people who have large acreages to plant milkweeds on a broader scale. So that people who own maybe a farm and have a little bit of land that is set aside because it's not good for farming, they can set it aside for growing habitat for pollinators. This has been found to help conserve soil. It helps the farmer's productivity levels. But farmers are really getting on board with this, this idea of planting habitat in marginal lands because it does actually help them a lot. When you have a garden, it's wonderful. But to have monarch butterflies fluttering around on your flowers, I mean, it just turns the garden into a magical place. Yeah, it does. It's really interesting. Such a iconic, I, I have a theory that, and I, of course, this hasn't been tested by any scientist, but, you know, monarch butterflies have what we call warning coloration. The predators that are interested in eating insects, if they eat a, a monarch butterfly, then they will immediately get those toxins in their system and they will have a reaction to it. The goal isn't to kill the predator, it's to teach it a lesson. But unfortunately, that one monarch probably sacrificed its life for that lesson. My theory is that we see those warning colors and something in our head is, is triggered. And because we haven't actually eaten a monarch butterfly to know that that's not something we want to spend our time with, we're actually drawn to it. We're like, what is that? That is so cool. And because they're big and they're flashy, they have those white dots on the edges of their wings um, and the bright orange coloration. I think there's something primal going on in our brains to attract us to this particular species. But it is really just kind of a flagship species for a lot of other things. We're not afraid, actually, that the monarchs are going to go extinct anytime soon. Our concern is that they are kind of a harbinger for other things that are going on in the world. So when the monarch colonies in Mexico go from millions of butterflies to just a million, in California, we're seeing tens of thousands of butterflies dropping down to a thousand or two 
on the West Coast, there's an entirely different monarch uh, population. It's looking very dire. So what does that say about our environment? What does it say about all of the other insects and animals that depend on these animals that are so monarchs, along with a lot of other things are on the lower end of the food chain. They, they feed other things. But once we start working on conserving the habitats, we'll start to see some benefits. As soon as you start creating habitat for insects, then you also bring in birds and other things. So, Now, can you tell me, do we know the numbers yet for monarchs on the eastern side of the United States for 2020? Are you talking about the anything that's east of the Rocky Mountains that head to Mexico? Yes. Yeah, so those numbers have not come out yet. We are waiting for, it's World Wildlife Fund in Mexico. And I just saw a really great presentation about this through the Monarch Butterfly Fund. They recorded it. So hopefully some people who are interested can, can look that up. Apparently what they do is they actually go down on the ground and they measure the space between the trees and actually walk the land and determine how many acres of land are covered with monarch butterflies. So th this year we're expecting the population to be lower than it was last year. 2019 was a little bit of a bubble. It went up in the in population size then, and we're, we're just seeing a slow, steady decline from there. But we don't actually know until they give us that information. What they have been seeing and been telling us about in Mexico is that the butterflies are moving around into areas that they normally do not move. There's a town called Angangueo, which is very close to two of the sanctuaries. And there are multiple sanctuaries in, in the area where they roost. It's not just one spot. We're talking about the transvolcanic mountain range in Mexico. And the city, Angangueo, is between the El Rosario Sanctuary and Sierra Chinqua. And apparently a lot of the butterflies that are coming in to El Rosario are actually moving into Angangueo itself, which is very unusual. Uh, I was there in 2019, and I did see a few butterflies here and there in a city. And when I say city, it's a very small village. But now they're just all over the town. So, and they're moving in and out, which is just unusual behavior. And we're also seeing colonies move around from one mountain range to another, according to the group Butterflies and Their People out of Cerro Pelon, which is a distance away from Engangueo. So there've been some interesting observations coming out of Mexico this year. There were a couple of nonprofit organizations and individuals who are um, monarch biologists who would like to see monarchs listed as threatened on the endangered species list. Monarch Watch has taken a fairly neutral to negative kind of opinion about this. We would really like to see monarchs remain off of the endangered species list, but there are some benefits to having them listed as well. So it's really hard to know for sure exactly what will happen if it does get listed. What happened recently on December 15th, there was a decision that had to be made by the Fish and Wildlife Service. They came out with the decision that they are not going to list the monarch as either threatened or endangered, but they're going to keep it up for consideration. And the reason being that they, they have limited resources and it would be a very monumental task to 
to take care of the problem that is facing us with monarchs. And they have other species that they need to focus on as well. It's not a heavily funded organization, unfortunately. So what this does for monarchs, though, is it keeps the monarch in a system of being reviewed annually, which is good. So every year they're going to re-review the status and, and determine at that point if it is going to be considered threatened or endangered. So they have to keep it in the forefront. And also it keeps organizations like Monarch Watch and Monarch Joint Venture and the one that I mentioned earlier, Project Monarch Health in Georgia, and a lot of other upstanding great organizations. It keeps us available and on the ready, you know, for, for any kind of changes that might occur. And hopefully it will mean, mean we get funding for more conservation efforts. We don't really know for sure, but there are a lot of different players who are interested in helping out. So hopefully we'll get, we'll get some more funding for, for helping us to conserve monarchs and other pollinators. So for our listeners, can you tell us how, if we wanted to order uh, milkweed plants, how do we go about that? Sure. We have a shop online and the shop is found at at shop.milkweedmarket.org. And you can also get there by going to our main webpage, monarchwatch.org. And there is a milkweed market button at the top of the page. So you can, um, once you get there, you can put your zip code in and the species that are available for your region will appear. Uh, Right now we're in in the process of figuring out how many plants of what species need to go to people in California. So they're not available in California yet, but we're hoping by the end of February, we'll start to be able to take pre-orders there. And when should people start ordering for the uh, Eastern side of the United States? You can order anytime between now and the date you want to plant. So we basically have a couple of growers that are growing for their own purposes and they are growing enough that they We've worked with them long enough. We, they know kind of what kind of buffer to have for plants that we're going to be selling. And any plants that we don't sell, they use for their own purposes. So that's a really good arrangement. And they are they actually able to ship plants up until the point where it gets too hot to ship them because we want them to arrive alive, obviously. So they are shipped via UPS. Um, sometimes people, when they when they get their plants, the UPS trucks have tipped the plants over. Fortunately, milkweed plants are incredibly resilient. And some people even ship them with bare roots. So once the plants get the root systems established, they can take a bit of abuse. So one of our main partners in our nursery partners actually trims the plants down dramatically before they ship them. And that does two different things. It helps them to package them in a way that they won't get tossed out of their pots. And it also conserves water for the plants while they're in root. Once they get put in the ground, they just take off. We do sometimes ship in the fall as well. So if we still have plants left over, people can order them. What is the ideal part of the yard to plant milkweed in? Is it full sun six to eight hours a day or part sun, say like four to five hours a day? Is there a, is there a sort of like a golden area where they thrive? We don't have, have any milkweed plants that we sell that need any kind of shade. They're all going to require full sun. We have found that some of the species do okay in part shade, 
but they tend to get very, very tall, especially common milkweed and common milkweed. If it's in shade, what it will do rather than flower is it will try to find a sunny spot in its root system. It will reach out sometimes as far as 10 feet with its roots to seek out some sunny spots. And some people aren't really very fond of plants just kind of popping up randomly. I had, well, the first time I grew common milkweed, I did have it in a shady spot and I knew it hadn't bloomed and I was waiting for it to flower and waiting for it to flower. And then all of a sudden it was coming up everywhere. And I knew that I, it hadn't flowered. So it wasn't coming up from seed. It was coming up from roots. And I, I started pulling the, the plants out of my yard and do they prefer, uh, do they like dry soil or slightly damp soil? So there's a, about uh, 98 to 100 different species of milkweed plants in the United States. But if you live in the eastern United States, there are really just three main plants that you'll find. One of them is common milkweed. The other one is swamp milkweed. And then the third one that you'll find pretty readily in, in nurseries is butterfly weed. The butterfly weed and the common milkweed both do like dry soils. Swamp milkweed, as its name suggests, can tolerate a lot more water. It doesn't need to be in a swamp, but it does It does have a tendency to do well in gardens because it doesn't do that thing that common milkweed does. It doesn't pop up randomly everywhere, and it can withstand some watering that a lot of people like to do with their, their plants in the summer. Yeah, we had a really frightening drought here in New England last summer. So a lot of plants never made it to blossom stage, weren't sure. able to give nectar to pollinators because they didn't have enough water in their root system to create the, the nectar. Yeah, so you'll have drought tolerant plants if you plant Asclepias tuberosa, which is the butterfly weed, or Asclepias syriaca, which is the common milkweed. And you won't need to water them if it's if it's super dry. One thing that people often will see if it does get super, super dry, they will go dormant. They'll treat it like it's a winter, basically, because the upper environment is not a good place for them to be. So they'll just recede back into the ground until it becomes a better condition for them. And how much care do the seedlings need, the milkweed seedlings need, when they first go into the ground? I imagine it's important to, you know, as soon as you get the box water them so in case they're dry and then get them into the ground as quickly as you can. You don't want to wait. Yeah. So if there are people who order the plants and don't have time right away to plant them, you can put them in like the shade of a tree or something like that. You wouldn't want to sit them in full sun and their pots would dry out too much and it would be too stressful for them. So you can wait a little while before you plant them, but they do prefer to be I say prefer their plants. I don't know if they have any preferences, but they do thrive a little bit better if you get them into native soil right away. And um, then you do need to spend a little bit of time making sure that they stay watered until they get well-established. And you know, how do you know if it's well-established? It starts to bulk up. The seedlings of some of these plants look very different from the adult full-grown coming back from last year's rootstock. I've had a lot of people write me and say they think that I, I sent them the wrong plants because the plants that they received don't look anything like what they ordered. Well, what they're thinking of is the adult second year growth, which looks sometimes very different from the first year. So you'll know, you'll start to see them beef up and they'll start to look a lot more hardy 
And that's time to maybe let off on the watering a little bit. Now, can you tell me, because it sounds like it's really up to each of us as homeowners to help the monarch, what are some things we can do to help turn things around? I think the number one thing to do is to participate in some kind of habitat restoration, whether it's in your own yard or support an organization that does so. Um, There are a lot of conservation organizations that are conserving land right now, and some of them are really well-known organizations like the Nature Conservancy or something like that. Supporting those kinds of organizations is really important if you don't have a place to plant milkweeds or the ability to. So not everyone's a gardener. A lot of people like to think that raising monarchs is a really good way to conserve them. And what we like to say is that raising monarchs is a good way to make people interested in conserving them. Like I was talking about before, when you get to know an organism and you have a good positive relationship with it, then you're more likely to want to conserve it. But raising monarchs to release isn't going to boost the population in a positive way. Sometimes those monarchs are actually less healthy. So we have to be really careful about how far we go with that kind of thing. Certainly, if you're interested in raising monarchs, we're not going to tell you not to because it does actually have a, a you know, that kind of contagious benefit. You know, you tell your friends about it and they come over and they see your beautiful monarch butterflies. But participating in something like the monarch larvae monitoring project through the monarch joint venture or making sure that your monarchs are free of parasites through monarch health, participating in some of these organizations not only makes sure that what you're doing is not detrimental, but it also gives them information that's very important for better understanding of monarchs. And there are a lot of organizations out there doing what we call community science right now. Another one, if you're just wanting to record observations, we have the organization Journey North. Journey North is involved in recording a lot of different migratory populations, including robins and a couple of types of other types of birds like hummingbirds and whales, but they also monitor the migration of monarch butterflies. So the first monarch that you see of the year, if you happen to have a a picture of it or just want to send them an observation without a picture, they'll put that little dot on the map where you saw the butterfly. And it's very helpful for us to understand like in the springtime, where are the first butterflies showing up? Are they too early there? Are they too late there? What are the weather conditions that year for monarchs that are just arriving from Mexico? Is that an appropriate time for them to arrive? And it's easy for us to just go online and and make those observations known to the scientific community. I want to thank Angie Babbitt for speaking with us today. For more information about how to help the monarchs, please go to monarchwatch.org. Never has there been more urgency about helping and protecting the monarch. You can certainly help efforts by planting milkweed in your yard. Please make sure it has been grown organically and that there has been no use of pesticides like neonicotinoids. Even better, you can order milkweed plants for the monarchs by going to monarchwatch.org and using their ordering site. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. 
Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.